Welcome, fellow tech enthusiasts, to another insightful episode of Above the Clouds, uh, the podcast where we ascend to new heights in cloud technology. I'm your host, Dan Humphreys, and today joining us is Simon Adler, the Senior Director of Solution Engineering at Pyramid Analytics. Simon is a seasoned tech professional with over two decades of experience in the technology industry, particularly within the realms of SaaS, focusing on pre-sales and solution engineering. Having witnessed the evolution of technology and cloud solutions firsthand, Simon has valuable is a valuable source sorry, of uh, knowledge and insight into what makes a truly compelling technology concept. Simon, welcome to the show, uh, and thank you very much for being with us. How are you? Hi, Dan. Great, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks. Awesome, awesome. So um, where do we start? Uh, a little bit about yourself, perhaps. Uh, what, what got you into uh, techno- into the technology space in the first place? Well, I, I, it's going to go back a long time, so certainly far further than the two decades. And thanks for making me sound really old um, there. But um, <laughs> it, 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 it probably started... Um, my father was in financial services um, and was using computers every day. He's one of those chaps who used to have one of those great big mobile phones that was the size of a suitcase. Um, and so, you know, brought home a computer one day. I was six or seven. And so I started playing around with computers at that age and 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 actually being dyslexic. I found them much easier to relate to than sort of just anything written or, or spoken. So I started playing with them and coding like really early. I found it really fun. Um, and that sort of went all the way through, you know, school, university. I did a com- uh, computer systems engineering degree. And and after that, I, I joined a consultancy that developed bespoke engineering sort of um, software. And I had spent a year on site at Exxon developing, you know, data warehouse for their experiments and their very first intranet. Um, and and this is going back, you know, before the, you know, the, the the dawn of the millennium. So, you know, it's going back, you know, quite some time. And I ended up in, you know, enterprise search companies um, called Verity, who subsequently got acquired by autonomy i've actually been through quite a few acquisitions and and ipos i'm lucky um to on that regard um and at the time the md because i was in a consulting role thought i'd be great in pre-sales and i've been doing that ever since and i love it for me it's the best job in the world what is it about pre-sales that that creates that excitement for you there's a there's a number of things. I, I I think it's because I get to solve real business issues with leading edge technical solutions. Um, because I tend to specialize in scale ups or startups, um, I'm always dealing with technologies that are um, disruptive um, or uh, going to have a, a you know profound difference or change on the way people tend to work or use data. I've, predominantly always been in a data sort of environment. So every day I get to learn their challenges about their business. So I get to learn their business, you know, the way that they do. And, and it gives me the privilege of being able to, you know, sort of think about how do we map technology to solve those problems? Um, and I'm at the point now where I, I can walk down the high street and go, yeah, I've done something for them and I've influenced that business, I've influenced that business and I've done those things or I've changed the way um, 
insurance or financial services done online. I, I was instrumental in um, designing and building along with, you know, colleagues at the time, probably London's first sort of um, uh, web agency, Insure and Go is a company to do online insurance sales that had never been done before. Um, the Labrooks online gambling sort of site. Um, and so there's some really exciting things and, and just continue to do that. I tend to pick companies pretty carefully so that we can continue to you know, drive that, that, that change. And for me to get really excited about that change, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor or a nurse. I don't save lives every day. Um, but I do sort of like to go into an industry and go, you know what, I've made a difference here and I feel like I can do that using technology. Yeah, I, I, there's always that sort of cross section between you know, technology and, and, and creative, which I find fascinating. And mm. you know, coming up with and ideating new use cases as a technologist for for those business problems, you know, is such an exciting space to be in. I can imagine that you know, and there's no doubt you know of how crucial a role pre-sales engineering plays mm. for for technology companies you know, across across the spectrum. But you know the challenge. You know, the main challenge is that that technical communication, very much an art in in itself. Yeah. Um, so how do you convey complex technical concepts in a way that's not only clear and concise, but also engaging for your audience it, as well? It is a great question, and and I think that's where you know you're 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 looking for that sort of unicorn of sort of traits because it is still um, a, a trusted advisor sales function. And yet you're mapping technology to be able to do that. You're often architecting on the fly. Um, so you still need to be able to have that communication, to be able to think about where are we at, the psychology, that read the body language. Um, all of those elements that aren't necessarily natural or intuitive to really technical people, you often don't find that blend. So being able to communicate and articulate a particular message, you know, clearly that has that resonates, that has value. Um, and one of the best ways to do it is by telling stories. Um, you talk, and, and the reason that's so important is because people remember stories. It's how, you know, people learn things before pen and paper, before tablets and stones, people would tell stories and you'd remember them because they'd be relatable or contextual to the person that you're talking with. And so ultimately being able to craft a, a visual, a presentation or a demonstration or talk about why it's important to them. It's never about us. Mm. It's about them. What's it mean to them? How's it going to change their job, their career, their personal experience? is what's critical and, and and so you always have to put yourself in their shoes and go well, hang on so what why is that important to me and the, the moment you start to do that you th you think about some of the challenges in a different way and what you want to talk about and what you shouldn't talk about is there any particular one type of story that uh that, that works best is it the cautionary tale or is it the the hero saves the day <laughs> yeah, so so yeah I, I think what is it there's the eight to twelve yeah, standard stories ever stories, in, yeah. in in the history of earth uh, like the hero's journey you've got this hero they you know come across a, a challenge what 
happens to them, you know, in, in that pit of despair where in that challenge and then they have this heroic moment where they overcome that challenge and 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 then they're a hero and almost every great story you know whether it's uh, you know the matrix gladiator um star wars any of those other sorts of um sort of films that are, are, are seen as epics they tell that same story yeah. um and you know, it's funny as a as a technology vendor, we're often said, "Well, tell tell the customer story," and and you're so tempted to talk about all the great things you did on that opportunity or on that deal. And it's it's not about us. It's no, it's about the person who saw a problem in their business. That's the hero, mm. but they're stuck doing the same things or the environment that they're in, but they want to make a change. And so you have to coach them through how to make that change, often how to buy or evaluate the technology that you're looking at, how to sell it internally so that they can get the benefit. And ultimately, you know, they're getting a personal brand win and the company's getting a win because they're doing something in a, in a new way. The, the other thing that I think is a real privilege is that as solution consultants, you're often sitting there going, well, hang on a minute, that's not going to work. That's not the right way to do it. And I think that has a huge amount of credibility to to customers. And I, I actually wish prospects who are talking to sales engineers, pre-solution consultants, more would say, tell me what you think we should do. Mm. So few customers say, come and ask you for advice. And 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 the reason that you know we're often experts. They might talk to their peers or they might have worked in a couple of organizations before where they're doing very similar things. When you're talking to sales engineers, they are talking to tens, hundreds, thousands of prospects and customers across a year or a couple a of years. A problem they haven't. A problem they've never heard of or seen or they've got a solution to a problem that they've never even thought about because we get to stand on the shoulders of giants and see that somebody else potentially has done that or our team with our approach to that technology. So that would be a bit of advice I'd have to anyone who's sort of thinking, I, I'm thinking about it and you go talk to people because they will help you. It's their job to help you. So ask the question. You don't need to have all the answers. And, and often, and I've been kicked under the table by some of my sales counterparts, you know, where the prospects has turned after talking to some of my sales counterparts and said, all right, Simon, what's the real truth? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, you know, as, as long as they can be successful, you, you, you got to win. You, you can, yeah. you can give it a shot. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Tell us a little bit about your, your, your current role. So you're now with, with Pyramid, uh, Pyramid Analytics. Um, and from, from what I know, uh, you, you specialize in decision intelligence. Uh, you have a platform that, that enables that. What, what's that all about then? Yeah, so decision intelligence is seen as the next evolution of business intelligence. Um, so, so why the pivot on the title? Um, and and this is something we debate all the time because people are like, oh, I I I'm looking for a decision intelligence platform or solution. It doesn't really happen. The problem is is that there is a growing movement that business intelligence is seen as a legacy approach to help consumers of data be more productive. Mm. 
And what right. I mean by that is chuck data up in a chart or a visualization and hope for the best the problem is most people consuming those analytics unless they're the person who created that have no clue what it's describing or what it means and so there's a real lack of data literacy and ultimately most organizations they just want to answer a few questions what should i do more of what should i do less of where should i go next the problem is most business intelligence has been so focused on the data stack and the data architecture and the visualizations, they've forgotten why they're doing it. Mm. Very true. You know, I'm going to move the data. I'm going to put it into a great big normalized warehouse or super clouds and stick it in the data mesh. That's all really cool, right? Yeah. Everybody loves to do that. but No one cares about the rod. It's all about the fishy land, right? Yeah, but... Unless people are actually genuinely going to be able to extract value from it, why are you doing it? It's pointless. So, you know, and people sort of think a lot about the cost of get moving the data and doing that, but not really about what's it mean to surface up insights that have a profound impact on the organization. Um, and so ultimately, you know, most of the legacy technologies are looking at um, descriptive analytics. What happened in the past? Nobody cares what happened in the past to a certain degree. They can go talk to an employee. You know, what happened? They've got a hypothesis. They've got a gut feel. What they really want to know is, well, hang on a minute. What across all of my data, what were the things that worked or didn't work? And therefore, what are the things I should do more of and what are the things I should do less of? And that's what decision intelligence is all about. Yes, it is BI, but really it's that next evolution. It's helping and guiding anybody who wants to consume the data to make a better decision, not just an analytics persona. The people, the business people who are in the field, on the factory floor, in the office who are going, I wish I could do more with this rather than going, you know what, I, I can't figure this out. I'm just going to use Excel. Everyone knows, you know, that's ultimately what happens. Even with these legacy technology tools, I'm going to export it to Excel, manipulate it, do that last mile modeling. Um, but that has its own challenges and risks, such as your governance, your security, the timeliness of data, trust in the data. That's the biggest issue that you then have. Um, so all of those things are massive issues that haven't been addressed uh, today. And Pyramid was designed from the ground up to address those challenges. Brilliant. So decision intelligence is something that, that I only heard more recently as well. So we could almost call that a bit of a buzzword at the moment, although it sounds like there's some solid, solid ground behind it. We, yes. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that I actually asked uh, in a panel talk this morning. I went to DTX Europe. Uh, yeah. EXL in London, um, and I'm going to paraphrase the title because I can't remember what the, 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 the exact title of the panel talk, but it was, how do we change the narrative of cloud and AI being seen as a as a cost black hole uh, to a more of a value creation um, for businesses? And my question was to do with sort of human error versus uh, technology error, or they were more specifically AI error. Um, and the question was with 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 um, 
value creation being uh, correlated most often with with good decision making. Yes. How um, with the innovations in in AI, deep learning, machine learning, and, and platforms uh, like Pyramid, how how do you see or, or foresee um, decision making moving away from the person at the end of the tech and potential human error more into the hands of of the tech, sort of giving you the answer? Um, and is Pyramid is that something that Pyramid is 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 copying onto there? Wow, um, I'm, 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 unpacking, I'm unpacking all of that in my head, and you can see the the the, the gears whirring. Um, there's a huge amount there. Um, I, I'm I might almost start at the you know on the 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 the, the more pertinent questions around the 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 value and and the human decision maker. I think everything we do in technology and this is just maybe it's a personal belief rather than a you know a pyramid belief but should drive value there's got to be a reason for doing it and and that's but you know one of the big things i sort of look for during sales opportunities if there's no value don't do it yeah. and and this is really important when you're building technology stacks and those sorts of things just because it's a great technology or it's a buzzwordy technology if you can't see how it's going to benefit you or it's not going to or it's not measurable, don't do it until you've got a clear idea of what that looks like. Having spent 10 years in project management, so many organizations run projects and even though they were looking to fail, they wouldn't stop them. I think I think with um, the HS2 thing, now I'm not going to go political on that, but it's actually very brave to stop something that has been so committed after so much money um, um, because they don't think that you're going to get the right outcomes. Most people don't, and they pour good money after bad at something. Um, that could also, is a probably a good segue into some of the first parts of the questions, which is about intelligence ai you know generative ai and those sorts of things and with everything there's a it's a double-edged sword one i don't think the human's going to get away from the from that decision making aspect of it i think there's going to be very much guidance but i think we've got to be careful about not getting complacent and not surfacing up whatever's given to us we've got to learn what's fake news what's a fake decision if you will in terms of what comes and we've got to teach ourselves what are the right questions to ask and make sure that we don't ask questions that are going to provide us with biased responses We're, that's a that's always been a, a, a premise of um analytics of not being biased when you are asking the questions because you're going to get a biased response i i think generative ai challenges some of those aspects um and another analogy i use is you know if you have like a tesla and you've got or any of the other sort of vehicles that do the auto driving for you are you going to pay attention as much attention if you know that it's doing it so uh, if it's doing if it's driving it for you are you going to pay attention are you going to question what it's doing as much especially if nine times out of ten it's good but what about that one time out of ten where it's not right or you need to intervene but you've gotten complacent about 
the responses or the answers you're getting from a recommendation and and that's the the crash the crash videos of teslas when they first came yeah and 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 it could happen to it could happen to any manufacturer so i'm not sort of obviously sort of saying they they were the pioneers though right so yeah they're pioneering and and i think it's great you've got to break ground and and be pioneers and some of those other things I, i i think we've got to be conscious and and i think generative ai is also one of those other areas which is is that double-edged sword i think people from it and this is the hope is hoping that it's going to bridge the gap between their expectations and reality for human computer interaction they're hoping it's going to make it much easier to be able to do their work and and give them some of those efficiencies but i feel it's far more complex than the wider generalist type models that we that, that are pervasive today especially when you're dealing with corporate information you tend to require facts mm-hmm. not associations right. now generative ai models tend to deal with associations these these responses come up most when i see this sequence of um uh words happening in the same sequence doesn't necessarily understand the context of what that is but it's creating it because that's where it most often sees it. So it's generating a perception of fact. Yes. But it's not a real fact. Now, put that on your corporate data, and you could get in really hot water, especially as most corporate data isn't lovely, you know, text and words and essays and things that it can easily work work from. It's numbers. And the learning that's required to figure out what those numbers are, true facts, um is really complex now you see associations of numbers most often coming together are you going to find the outliers in your data that tells you what you should do when you've got a serious problem no you're not going to see that unless you're specifically training a model to look for the outliers and so you've then got to do all of that work to be able to do those things is it going to be able to create you maybe some marketing content yeah perhaps Again, if you're using very similar market-orientated models, then where's your competitive edge? If everybody's then doing the same thing because they're using models that everybody else is using, everybody's doing the same thing. So where's your standout competitive edge that goes, wow, that's different, that's interesting, that's creative? Um, And I don't think we want to take away... Uh, get away from the creativity and i think that's very much where the human element will be much more creative at taking thinking about solutions to problems certainly in at least a short to medium term i like that answer it differs slightly but it's also related to to one of the panelists answers where he talked around that he agreed with you there will will always be warren tucker i'll shout him out from pwc um there will always be a human element to it, um, but the, the the human element is more focused on judgment. Yes. Whereas the dis, you know the, the decision making can always come from tech, but the judgment will always come from the human. And I thought that was a really 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 good way of putting it. And, and combining that, you know, with what you're saying on the creative aspect, you can't have judgment without being creative and thinking about that long term implication um, and 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 ramifications, you know, long term. So. Um, Awesome. Um, let's move on to our main uh, segment of the show. So um, 
for the for the for the guys at home, our new listeners that uh, that haven't haven't seen the show before, here's the drill. I'll be reaching into a very lovely cloud shaped bowl off screen um, and pulling out three buzzwords that are making waves or gathering attention um, in the tech world currently. So Simon here will be uh, sharing his thoughts, experiences, and most important, importantly, his honest take on just how impactful these buzzwords are. Um, we'll rate them on a scale from zero to 10. So a perfect 10 signifies it's the future of cloud technology soaring high above the clouds, hence the name of the show. A middle of the road five suggests it's solid, but not necessarily revolutionary. Um, or in fact, where we've come across other topics in previous episodes, it's not quite ready uh, to be utilized. Um, and a ground level zero, well, that's uh, the industry fluff, BS and empty jargon with no real substance that we sometimes come across. So Simon, your first buzzword of today uh, is Augmented analytics, it seems. Uh, so, okay, I, I I know a little bit about augmented reality. Uh, yes, are they related? Um, you know what? I I think there's an element uh, to it that is obviously um, the augmentation is really the support that you get. So, if you think about augmented reality, it's highlighting elements that you can see around you so it's an overlay if you will and i think that's probably where the analogy fits really well um, in augmented analytics you are overlaying what the individual is seeing with enriched insights so that the person understands what they're seeing and what they need to do with it so that's really important you chuck a whole bunch of data to somebody they don't know where it came from, why it's presenting the where it is. And typically, in the data sense, they're going to go back to their analytics team and go, what the heck? I, 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 you know, what's going on here? Augmented analytics, like augmented reality, is helping that end consumer understand the world around them and therefore what to do with it. And augmented analytics is exactly the same. Hey, you're seeing this data point. This is why... It's showing it this way. This is the root cause analysis. These are the influences or the dominant drivers that's presenting it in the way it is. This is what you might need to do with this thing. If you want to change what's happening in your business, you need to do more of this or less of this. And that's what augmented analytics is all about. It's about enabling the end consumer to be so much more um, aware of what they're doing, why they're doing it and empower them in a democratized way, and a few more buzzwords, um, to do their job much more efficiently and effectively because it, it, it's like having stabilizers on your bike, right? It's guiding you and helping you to make sure you don't fall off and you can get what you need done, just like aug uh, augmented rea reality might be. Right, where does, where does this come from then, augmented reality, and, and how would, an organization uh, take advantage of it. So, so augmented analytics is, you know, I, I, I think it's been um, developed by certain vendors um, uh, and pyramid is seen 
you know, by by Gartner as one of the leading, if not the leading organization for this, when they go uh-huh. through things like their critical capabilities report, the augmented consumer pyramid was ranked number one for. And, and, and the reason that's so important is because it's all about ensuring that that end user is maximizing the value from the data. Uh-huh. So most organizations sort of uh, bolt it on um after the fact what pyramid does because it's got an end-to-end sort of uh, platform approach that looks at data from source all the way to insight or decision it has a much richer vein of knowledge or, or 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 experience to look at and go hang on a minute statistically heuristically um uh, from AIML modeling perspectives, this is what's happening to your data and this is why. And so that paradigm approach of being able to connect to your data anywhere, rather than just, I'm going to stick a visualization over a bunch of curated data, because already you've created a subset and a subset and a subset of what somebody might need to do. And, and your data or IT team surfaces that up to a business analytics person, but you've taken away all of the unknown unknowns. Producy bits. All the uh, that's all your opportunity. Yeah. Because you've already got hypothesis around what that data is, and you know. Um, There's um, that bias been, already. Yeah, I, I, I've been told not to say this, you know, um, because it might be a little bit too political in the past. But uh, for me, it's the analogy that Donald Rumsfeld has used um, before. There are no knowns. And that's often your curated data set. There are known unknowns. I want you to go get some data from this data source to run some analytics on it. But there's a whole bunch of unknown unknowns, which is that really, those are the golden nuggets in your data where you can have competitive advantage because now your analytics and business people can look for that rather than going, I'm looking for this. So you pass the word down, it goes to your business sort of, person who's then going to scope it out they're then going to send it to a project manager they're going to go and talk to a data scientist or an IT person they're going to plumb around in the data without knowing the context of what that data means or because they're not a subject matter expert they're going to come back with some data it's going to get all passed back it's going to scrubbed and cleaned and polished and polished and polished till you've got something but it's not necessarily the thing that you're looking for Okay, interesting way of looking at it. Can you share any real-world success stories uh, or use cases where this augmented analytics is, has delivered tangible benefits? Yeah, um, I, I would say every single one of our customers who's um, using um, our technology today. So we've got some amazing um, case studies Um uh, Bank of Mexico, they actually surface pyramid on, on, on their external website. So end consumers can actually slice and dice data and get some insights from it. Um, we've got people like Liberty Group. Um, they've got department um, department heads in the department store going around with iPads going, oh, what's selling? What isn't selling? What should I stock more of? What should I not stock more of? How, how's that being consumed? And that's on a daily basis. And then we've got a whole raft of other ones like um, we're, one of our larger customers is the U.S. Um, um, uh, Veteran uh, Affairs. Um, they look after 
you know, veterans um, in their hospitals, um, in their local sort of states to optimize their care so that they are having a, the least impact on the hospitals and the care system, mm-hmm. but the best care that they can have. And so the doctors and nurses, I think there's some 52,000 of them every day, are look at utilizing Pyramid to go, well, what should my staffing look like? What operations should we be doing? What is the likelihood of an influx of veterans because of these sorts of symptoms or causes that they've had in the past because that's what they've registered? All and and you can't do that as an analytics person. They're not data subject matter experts, if you will. They're not data tech experts. They've got a role to fulfill and the data needs to enrich what they're doing. So the data needs to come to them, not then go to the data. And that's why what we do, Pyramid doesn't, we don't take the data and move it. We take them to the data so that they can do what they need to with it. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that's quite a good way of ending that topic. Um, So scores on the doors. Uh, augmented analytics, not reality, analytics. Yes. Um, where is it in the clouds out of 10? Um, I, I, I think if any organization is looking to utilize their data, which most organizations do. Um, yes. I'll disagree with that one. Um, and it's going to help them more competitive. I, I would say it's a necessary future for everyone who wants to be better at their jobs and organizations be better so i think as um as we evolve the ai and the ml and the generative language models so that we can get uh, even more pervasive and have people enrich it even more for me i think that's a really important topic it, it's a must-have you can't do without it or you shouldn't do without it right because otherwise what are you doing um you, you're living in the past so i um be, being british nothing's ever going to be a 10 right um there's always, just, always room for improvement right? there's always room for improvement and and um you know we do but what we have is pretty special um, I'd, I'd probably put it at an eight and a half or a nine. It's pretty critical. Fantastic. Nine out of ten. Lovely. Um, so let's move on, move on to our second uh, mm. topic. Ah, this is one to you know, bring, bring up DTX uh, again. This is one I first heard at last year's DTX. Uh, Supercloud. Mm. Uh, so... I, I still don't quite understand it myself. Um, maybe, okay. I, maybe I need to look into it a little bit more. But Superfound to me sounds like a bit like a comic book hero. Does it? Does it have any special powers? Do you think? Yeah. Well, I, it could do. Um, <laughs> and 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 my what's the, what's the definition of Supercloud to, to, to you, Simon? So Supercloud is a cloud architecture that enables application migration as a service across different availability zones or cloud providers, i.e. it's a centralized cloud management platform. So think about it as federating all your cloud environments Mm -hmm. into one central managed place. Um, And so ultimately it creates a a unification control zone, you know, a single pane of glass to all of your clouds, you know. Um, So it acts as an agnostic abstraction layer 
um, enabling that orchestration. So some of the benefits that you get from it are things like centralized management and control, interoperability and portability, enhanced governance and security, um, because you've got a centralized framework, mm-hmm. but you could counter that and go, actually, you've got more exposed risk because you've got lots of different clouds in lots of different places and lots of traffic going on. But I think you should be able to because you're not having to replicate, you know, cows, logon, security, credentials across lots of different environments. And that's probably a more critical one. Um, you theoretically should have cost optimization and resource efficiency because you're you know extrapolating what good looks like on in one environment across all of your different environments um resilience and business continuity i think that one's key from a regulation perspective and so any organization that is in a regulatory environment um so uh, maybe what the businesses or the organizations that would most benefit i would see are things like uh, for resilience and distribution, things like financial services, mm-hmm. central government, healthcare, anything where you can have, you know, zero downtime, where you need to, from a regulatory perspective, not be dependent on one hyperscaler, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I understand, there's moves in the market to ensure that. You know, if your services are run on AWS, you need a GCP or an Azure or an Oracle cloud or, you know, mm-hmm. any number of one of those other ones to be able to go, all right, if something happens to that organization or that goes down, you got something else yeah. as your backup and, and you've got that sort of sync, that load balancing, if you will, or, 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 or near real time sort of backup between those sorts of things. Um, but it's not really a just for data storage it's for containerization persistence and all of that sort of thing so that you're pushing it out in an almost federated way it sounds to uh, me that answered your question <laughs> yeah. sounds to, it's good to hear uh it explains like that but it does sound to me as if it's a another word or at least an evolution of of multi-cloud am yeah, i on the I, right I, line sir I would probably perceive it in 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 a similar way, and and the, the super cloud, you know, was the emergence, um, or emerged in twenty twenty one by uh, John Furrier at an AWS conference intact. Um, and no doubt he was pushing multi cloud. <laughs> right, but super cloud is being hey, you got one great vendor that's managing all your clouds, right? And, yeah, and, and so <laughs> right, I see. You know, I think for me, my personal opinion, because I've not had to personally deploy services in a super cloud type environment, I'd look at it as an end consumer going, all right, I I don't get this quite as much. So so my feeling is, is that super cloud, other than outside of those sorts of organizations, has therefore been a technology or hyperscaler push rather than consumer demand. Yeah, it sounds to me as if it's the one vendor answer to multi-cloud in a way. You know, 
Exactly. Yeah, and, and 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 but but that doesn't mean there hasn't been certain successes or re, or or necessary requirements for that sort of thing. Um, I believe early adopters such as Goldman Sachs put a super cloud, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, sort of capability, and United Airlines, and that's another really good example of you might need that super cloud sort of environment where you are able to replicate a lot of and it's, it's probably slightly different to multi-cloud because one is two providers one is the other the super cloud is basically being able to go right i've got multi-clouds from the same provider but i want to replicate and scale and different options and 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 ultimately if you are doing that federation at some point you're probably going to end up having one of those hyperscalers or super clouds being able to reference another one in a similar way to, uh, you know, uh, how you federate single sign-ons and and those sorts of things across different um, activities. And yeah, it's going to make it easier to manage and control. But you know, again, you've got to have a good reason for doing it. Sure. It's, your for me, it's like a bit like blockchain, right? When yeah. blockchain came out because of crypto, everyone, oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's great. We're going to build blockchain into everything that we do and create a transaction log. And I haven't heard anyone building blockchain type applications now for a little while. Yeah, you know, ledger type things, but not specifically blockchain type elements. And I think that was it had a purpose for that particular type of use case. And it was great for that, but you don't necessarily need it for everybody else. Nobody needs to create this distributed, you know, irrefutable ledger um, that's indestructible. That's going to create insane amounts of compute um, resource or need, especially with energy costs the way they are. So, so, so you got to think about not should I, not can I do it, but should I do it? I think I think there's a whole other conversation that we rabbit hole we could go down on NFT. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, we, exactly. We won't dare dare jump into because we'll, we'll be here for another three hours potentially. <laughs> okay, super cloud. Let's get to the ratings on on that one then. Um, I have my opinions, but I'd like to hear yours. Um, where do you rate it in, in in the clouds at the moment? For me, it's probably a little bit more marketing spend around containerization and those sorts of things. I'd, I'd probably put it at a not being super knowledgeable about them or use them. I'd probably put them at a five. Oh, a five. I, I was actually going to say uh, you're being a little bit kind there. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay, cool. Five, five. So well, is, that, is that because it's not revolutionary or is that because it hasn't reached its potential yet? Do you I think? think it's evolutionary. It probably hasn't reached its potential yet. But I, uh, the, the, the benefits, I think, are, you know, not dissimilar to um, I, I'm, I'm managing my containers in an elastic environment. Yeah, great. It's useful. But is it groundbreaking? Is it going to fundamentally change the revenues or the results of a business? And, you know, unless you're mitigating risk or those sorts of things, maybe not. But I've got to give it some benefit of doubt that, you know, but I do sort of think it's a marketing technology push more than a consumer pull right now. But there absolutely are industries um and verticals that are going to need it a lot more than most like blockchain 
Okay, um, I do agree with you uh, on that bombshell. Let's move on to our third and final uh, topic of the day, uh, which is data mesh, uh, Mr. Adler. Right. Um, and I, I'm correct, correct in saying data mesh is gaining traction uh, as a decentralized approach to data architecture. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I, I think think of it more as, again, it's federated data. Gotcha. So, about, um, about, so about, you talk about the topic data, up at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Data fabrics, data meshes, weaves, whatever, whatever you like. Ultimately, it's creating that sort of semantic layer that creates democratization of the data. So it, it's basically going, hang on a minute, I shouldn't and I don't need to move all my data. So, but I still want to be able to access it in a governed, secure, controlled way. And so the, the data mesh uh, is, is, is what, you know, that concept is all about. And ultimately, it means that you've got domain-orientated data products and collaboration. And ultimately, data warehouses concentrate on centralized data storage what you know and ingestion and historical data analysis and and all of those you know elements where you want to do a lot of reporting um in a location where you've normalized your data you've blended it you merged it you've done a bunch of stuff with it the the, the big reason why that is a challenge is you got to think about all of the processes and all the steps it takes to get not even there, but to somebody who wants to do something with it. So going back to, you know, being able to do analytics, let's say on it, you take it from your operational database, you put it into your reporting data warehouse. Maybe one of your clouds is in there. And you might be doing that for lots of your different systems, whether it's SAP, you know, Redshift on AWS, SQL Server and Azure, API type stuff, maybe flat file type stuff, and you want to be able to connect to all of that and, and move it and control it. Data Mesh theoretically enables you to connect to that, but most systems at some point are going to go, hang on a minute, no, you're going to have to move it. So you're paying to store and move that data multiple times, from the source to a warehouse, now to a, a, you know, a lake house or, a, you know, a, a puddle, a pond, whatever you want to call it, um, whatever the latest term is going to be for that. You're constantly moving, manipulating data. Every time you move it, it costs you. Every time you're storing it, it's costing you. Every time you're querying it, it's costing you. Um, the worst thing is you've got different tools. So now that's costing you. Your enablement, your change management is costing you. You've got different people and teams on those different technologies in those different tool sets. That's costing you. The whole thing's madness. And so this data mesh, data fabric sort of concept is to go, hang on a minute, let's think about this the right way and go, how much of this do we really need to combine? Mm -hmm. And where do we do it? Do we do it in the source system? Do, it, do we do it at an aggregated layer, like in the a data warehouse or the, you know, the, the cloud warehouse? Or do we do it at the sort of 
at the sort of analytic server sort of component, assuming that's what the output is. There could be lots of different outputs, but I'm using that one because it's you know close to my heart. Um, I think this is why Pyramid was built. It was to recognize that people have data everywhere and that's never gonna change. You're never gonna be in a perfect utopian state. Companies make acquisitions, they make tool sort of technology changes all the time. And so what you need is an architecture that's constantly adapting, constantly changing to your needs in a way that you can utilize it and get value from it. If you have a six month project to, hey, I'm gonna now connect to that and I'm gonna normalize it and scrub it and do stuff with it, you've already lost your competitive advantage on using that data. So, so, so that's why Pyramids was designed to talk to that and connect to that data at source and put the query to the most efficient place where it needs to be. Now that data meshes that semantic model, the instructions on how each of those data sources need to be consumed, to be queried, to be governed from a security perspective, um, controlled and all of those sorts of things. So now a data mesh in its own right is probably not as powerful as something that knows how to use it in the most effective way, again, to get the best outcomes for the business. Oh, that was a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> now you know how that feels. <laughs> I, I've, I've, our listeners who listen to podcasts before, I'm, I'm not a technical. Uh, uh, I'm a technical myself, so it, I, I quite like the premise of the show. The fact that when I'm speaking to guests like yourself, I get the opportunity to learn. Um, uh, so learning on the fly here. Am I, am I right to say that data measure it makes data more accessible? Yes, uh, and and. Off the back of that, then, is there a challenge around governance then with that approach to data? Um, there really can be, and that's why so many people do it badly. You've got to design governance, security, and performance from the ground up. You can't just chuck it over the top. And so, mm -hmm. the, the, so the moment you start to think about, the moment you go into a multi-tool set mm -hmm. architecture, you are likely going to break that. Or, or do it wrong or run risk. Um, so that is the big thing. And, 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 and the big challenge to adopting it is the paradigm shift that people need to get in of, of moving away from doing the things the way they've always done it because the technologies weren't really there to support that mode of working, but people are so set in the way they're doing things um, that they forget get that actually there are better ways mm -hmm. there is a there, there is a there is probably a single downside and that's decentralized data well not a single downside you you quite rightly pointed out you know a, a really important downside but one of the you know key ones is also decentralized data systems can often lead to varied data quality right because if you've got a an owner a domain owner of that data, the way they want to cleanse or manage that data might be different to somebody else. And so, and, and again, this is why if you don't, if you do that in isolation of how you want to create those curated sources and surface them up to people and have a single version of the truth on your calculations and your formulations and, and what your KPIs look like, if you do that in multiple places, 
you've already broken the whole paradigm and the value of getting the data mesh in the first place. So is it is it more susceptible to manipulation of the data or is it more susceptible uh, of, of, of not being manipulated? Like, can it be manipulated more than once and therefore be less less yes it probably it probably could if you have a tool approach a tool set approach rather than a platform approach to it so if you have lots of tools doing different parts of it you quite likely run the risk without wrapping it around lots of teams lots of other processes yeah you're not going to get the value out of it. Going the way the bits of the blender and, 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 and yeah. the hammer all at the same time. Yeah, you're going to create a rod for your own back because all you're doing is going, okay, we've got all of this amazing capability. Oh, but we're not going to give that to people because we need to control it. Yeah. So now you've lost all the benefit of being able to do that in the first place. So you might as well have moved it um, and then controlled it. And, and that's the thing. The, the people who own those data are paranoid about how it's going to be used and the people who want the data desperately want it but hate the controls gotcha. and so and that's why when you again you have these disconnected tool sets and teams and processes you're not getting the maximum value out of it and 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 again that's what we see as people making the biggest mistakes when they do this okay so Final uh, final score of the day, data mesh. Uh, where's it stack up? Um, in isolation, it's probably, you know, uh, a five. When you incorporate it into a bigger picture, a paradigm of utilizing data in the most efficient way possible, I think it's incredibly powerful. And so I think it, I think it's, you know, again, probably an eight or a nine um because of if it's used in the right way then the value that you're going to get out of it can be really profound and you, and you um, the risks and the challenges at the same time yeah and but so that's why if you have a platform that is wrapped wrapping around that and doing that for you in a single way amazing um but if you don't if you do it badly and and sadly most people do um then you're just creating lots of consultancy hours fair enough fair enough cool all right let's uh let's move on to my favorite part of the show um a little poke fun uh in some ways uh at the market at uh, top of the ops so this is where we look at yet another ops in the world of tech uh, everyone, uh, I, uh, I'm assuming, is aware of DevOps, there's SecOps, there's NetOps, uh, AIOps, LLMOps, uh, DevSec, NetOps, you name it, there's probably an ops for it. Uh, the one I've learned most about most recently from the uh, uh, Big Data LBN show that I visited a couple of weeks back is DataOps, where a very kind fellow uh, explained to me that it's DevOps, for data engineering, uh, who would have thought it? Um, so, uh, quick question for you, Simon. Can you shed yes. Can you shed any any further insight into data ops and, and how it might differ from DevOps, or is it the same thing? I, I think the framework, you know, taking a ITIL type. Let's chuck in some more sort of 
Um, uh, all about uh, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I, I think from a framework perspective, it's 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 really similar. I think, uh, and and it is important. That's what's doing, you know, the, the the governance and the process around making sure that your data is usable, it's clean, it's where it needs to be. You aren't. You don't have things like you know, GDPR or PII issues around the data and you can follow the legislative and and regional aspects of data. And I think that's really important, right? I, I, I don't think anyone would disagree. Um, if your health records, your personal health records are in a system, you want data and, and security ops to make sure that that isn't going to get used or abused um, in a particular way. Um, you know, technology is, is I look at it as a catalyst for change. It's not going to, you know, be the, the big part. And it's wrapped around with people and processes. And together, those three elements um, are really critical for people getting outcomes, whether it's SecOps or, or, or uh, DevOps or any of those other aspects. Um, what that data ops effectively is doing is wrapping the technology with the people and the process parts to make sure that the data is managed, controlled, secured in the way it needs to be and used the relevant way. So it is important. It, it's probably it's probably creating another whole team or function within the organization um and it might be that secops and devops all sit in the same team um doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's 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 different teams you know we often wear multiple hats today um and 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 ultimately i i think it is a pretty critical element and i think people do it without necessarily realizing that they do it um but I think I think that that I think we there's plenty of people that have said this to me before where these these are all things that were done before they coined DevOps or DataOps, yes. etc. Um, before and actually uh, Ricardo from Vodafone, who was on the last episode, he he said that 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 no ops is the uh, the ideal. Uh, it's quite funny you should say that DevOps. I, I I giggled to myself just then when he said DevOps and DataOps would all sit in the same. Um, uh, in the same team, and uh, you know, maybe think of an ops team <laughs> by by name, uh, but then that would be in conflict with, with Ricardo's no ops, and maybe there's a guy who specialises in no ops in that ops team at the same time. <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing is you start to think about decentralised data and teams and operations. You might have a data ops person. Um, uh, in different business units around the organization. And so the so, so the process part is be, being able to bring best practice together across all of those teams. Now, we have those today. You have, you know, sales ops, um, marketing okay. ops, um, and fundamentally, what are they doing? They are working with the data to make sure the data is in the right condition to be used. You know, and so, Whilst it's called sales ops or marketing ops or services ops, 
they are all fulfilling the same thing, which is all data ops. Gotcha. Gotcha. All, all boils down to data ops in the end. Yeah. There we go. Right, is it your favourite by, by chance? That's my, my usual question. It probably has to be. It probably yeah. has to be. Even, even as an ex-developer, you know, I, I've always been working in technologies and industries where data is key. And, and, and it's not just about the data it's it's it, it goes beyond that it's, it's information and then going on to knowledge you know it's the application of the information that comes from the data and 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 that's critical so yes i'd say data engineering is is or data ops is the foundation for being able to do that well excellent, excellent. okay cool well i think that wraps up uh today's episode um first i want to extend my sincere gratitude to you, Simon, uh, for, for joining us uh, and sharing your insights uh, uh, into the into, to our audience and, and into the world of tech. Um, I hope you guys at home uh, found this conversation uh, as enlightening as I did. Stay tuned uh, for our next episode, uh, again, uh, to uh, explore the ever-evolving world of cloud technology and beyond with more inspiring guests. Um, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please do consider liking, sharing, subscribing to our podcast. Uh, we're on most of uh, the, the usual su suspects, Spotify, uh, Apple, etc. Uh, and don't forget to follow us uh, and connect with Lawrence Harvey on LinkedIn to stay updated on our latest episodes and guest announcements. Um, but with the, the subscribe blurb out of the way, as per tradition, uh, do you have a hot take to leave our listeners with, Simon? Uh, wow. Um, there's probably so many. I, I, I mean, for me, I think if anyone is looking to make a change and you probably should all should be right, um, use data to make solid arguments and, um, uh, because that'll help reinforce what you're trying to do and make sure you keep communicating up and down the business. It's key. It's critical. Excellent. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Simon. Cheers, folks, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dan. Bye.